0: Good morning everyone. How are you? I got one question. Um, who prayed for snow? I don't know. I'm just wondering who the angel is. No, (laughs) I'm just kidding. Oh boy. Um, if you would um, open your Bibles with me to Luke 946. Oh, and I have a Nicholas giving me a hug. (laughs) I love you, buddy. Um, Oh my, they're sitting back there. Okay. Yeah, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. We'll be starting in verse uh, 46. Now, you may have noticed that we have three candles lit. We've lit our third, or we've lit our third candle. Um, It can be called the shepherd's candle. The third Sunday of Advent is considered God at Sunday, which comes from Philippians 4, verse 4. that says, Rejoice. And the Lord always, again, I will say, rejoice. It reminds us of the joy that the world experienced when Jesus was born. The color pink is rose, and it's associated with joy, which is why we use the pink candle. Uh, The candles sit within a wreath, which we've mentioned before, are like a, a wedding ring that is an unending circle. It reminds us of Christ's unending love for us, and it reminds us to keep him, as the candles are in the center, to keep him at the center of all of our Christmas celebrations and traditions. So this week, our challenge is to contemplate joy. <laughs> oh. These are my children, by the way. Let's we'll go back and sit, sit with mom, okay? okay thank you. Um, we are to contemplate joy this week—the um, joy that Jesus brings as we go about our preparations for Christmas. Uh, focus on Jesus as we per- purchase and, and wrap gifts, and we meditate on the gift of God uh, of Jesus, who brings us great joy. So, if you would look back at Luke nine forty-six, it says an argument rose among them, as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. And he said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Let us pray. Oh, our faithful God, we thank you for the advent of the coming of your son, Jesus, as we anticipate and prepare for his soon return. Lord, we give ourselves to to you humbly uh, and give ourselves to humility that we might rightly honor our Lord who came humbly, being made flesh, born in a manger, and who died a sinner's Help us, O oh Lord, to see ourselves as you would have us to see ourselves, and to receive our Lord as you would have us receive Him. So therefore, we surrender ourselves now in submission to the one who submitted to the lowest state of humanity, even unto death on our behalf. We give this time over to you with open hearts so that we may hear your voice and be filled with with your Holy Spirit this morning in the name of our Lord Jesus, amen. There's this human tendency to want to be favored, isn't there? Uh, or to be the best at something. Uh, and for some reason, this can come, become very apparent within a church. Um, and I'm not sure why we tend to try oftentimes to brag about how spiritual we are. But, but we do it. Some of us do it, at least. Uh, you know, you've heard, I read the Bible 45 minutes every single day, right? I, I fast and pray at least once a week. We heard that in the New Testament, right? I'm in youth ministry, sound ministry, the fellowship team, the decorating team, the missions team. I'm the first to church every week and the last to leave. I've been an elder for two decades. Oh, yeah, how do you serve the church? Like, like we. I hope I'm not describing anybody here. <laughs> That's not the point. Um, but, you know, I, I went to a top-rated seminary or, or I was baptized by... This great past, what you know, we, we tend to, to do that. You get it. There comes a point where we've all kind of flexed our spiritual muscles in some way, some way to prove how faithful we are and how great we are in the kingdom. Some of us more than others. But when our service becomes about how spiritual we are or how close we think we are to Jesus, we're missing the point. Our service is not about us looking good or earning favor with God. Our service, our holiness, is about His glory. It is about how we present Him. Kent Hughes made a brilliant observation about cats and dogs. He asks, why are things so upside down? Consider the difference between dogs and cats. The master pets a dog, and the dog wags its tail and thinks he must be God. The master pets his cat. The cat purrs and shuts its eyes and thinks to itself, I must be God. After God has graciously reached down to us, there's a perverse human tendency to think like the cat. That was a good quote by Kent Hughes. In our text today, what we'll see is that the disciples were asking the wrong question. Which of them is the greatest is irrelevant because none of them was really all that great. They were like Nicholas. They were <laughs> oh boy, he's got energy. You know what though, that kid can love like nobody else, i telling him, he is such a sweet, sweet kid. Um, it, so, but, but, but none of, you know, it's kind of like asking, what, what's the best kind of cat? No cat? I mean, come on. An outdoor kitty? One I don't have to feed, smell, or look at? I... No. My apologies to the cat people out there. We're, we're going to see that human ambition is not what makes anyone great in God's kingdom. The point isn't, how do I be great, but how do I honor the one who is greater than I will ever be? This is passage is about humility. Jesus humbled himself to be born outdoors, to live perfectly, to die as the worst and the lowest of sinners. And he is greater than us. So our job is to honor the least, because when we do that, we are honoring the greatest. Let's dig in here. Verse 46, it says, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Now, context is important here, even in a more devotional setting. Jesus has been demonstrating his identity, particularly as it relates to suffering. Up to this point, it's been difficult for the disciples to accept and understand his role as the suffering servant, because their hope was of Messiah coming as a conquering king, which he will. And their Jewish culture had been so fixated upon that for so long, it was hard for them to see the suffering servant part. And all of this is connected to the beginning of Luke, the point at which, as John tells us in his gospel, the Word became flesh. Jesus was not born in a great palace or the best hospital. He was born outdoors and laid in a feeding trough. He was familiar with human suffering from the beginning. And Isaiah prophesied of that long before. Here in Isaiah 53, verse 3. Isaiah 53, verse 3, if you have your Bibles open. And this is one that you could underline. Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. In the midst of this focus, the disciples have seen great things that Jesus has done. And they've come to realize that he is indeed the Messiah of the Old Testament that was prophesied of. And, he, and they knew that he was the Son of God, so they held him in very high esteem. They had tremendous respect for him. But their understanding of his identity diluted that respect. And so, they want to know which of them will hold the highest place of honor in his coming kingdom. They're thinking in royal terms. And what's missing here is the humility piece. In fact, in our day we have a pretty sanitized view of Advent and Christmas, don't don't we? Our decorations are right, silver and gold. I won't make you sing it, but I did a bad enough job, right? Even our nativities often have a a royal feel to them. But the nativity story is messy. Jesus was born into the most unsanitary conditions in a culture that saw children as an annoyance at best. We can read about Herod killing off the young male children in an attempt to kill the newborn king of the Jews that had been prophesied. And what's interesting is that the only place we see that recorded is in Matthew, which goes to show how little children were valued at that time. But the disciples still had a difficult time with the, the humiliation of their Lord. And they were arguing over which one of them was his favorite. R.C. Sprawl asked this, he says, what's wrong with wanting to be great? And he answers, Nothing. And everything. Phil Breichen noticed that the mistake of taking our eyes off the cross is closely related to seeking greatness for ourselves rather than God. Sproul continues we want our lives to count but sometimes we want it to count for the wrong reasons. The disciples were being competitive about their own honor rather than seeking God's honor. This is the most pointless argument in history according to Reichen. And and I agree with them. The greatness that they were after, they they could have dealt with a few different things. It could have dealt with having the most authority. It could have dealt with receiving the most preferential treatment, being the most valuable, or being the most favored by God. My little four-year-old Anna, um, she has this kind of, mean, sarcastic spunk to her. Um, She was a little lamb up here. She cute, right? Um, But I'll go in, I'll come into the house, and I'll scoop her up, and I'll start kissing her face, and then she'll retort, put me down, I only love mom. (laughs) And then we'll sit on the couch. And Nicholas, who you just saw, with that same energy will come and cuddle with me like crazy, He'll sit on the couch, he'll crawl on my lap, and that's when Anna comes and climbs on me and tries to push him out of the best spot on my chest, right, and so then I have two tiny humans and a 90 pound dog fighting each other for my affection. We we have this tendency to try to climb the spiritual ladder, to be the favorite. We wanna be looking down at all the other, well, less mature Christians sometimes, right? But look at how Jesus responds to the disciples. He says this in verse 47, but Jesus, knowing the reason of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. He takes a child here as an object lesson, which he liked to do, right? Uh, In the minds of the disciples, Jesus and the child are contrasting figures, aren't they? they? They had a very high regard for Jesus. They discovered that he was indeed the promised Messiah. Peter confessed that he was the Christ of God. God the Father spoke verbally to Peter, James, and John at the Transfiguration and said, "This is my Son." Children, however, they were they were disposable, or at least an inconvenience. In fact, did you know that back then, in that time, they even had abortions that are very much today, like on modern day DNA abortions, where they would. Cut the child with medical instruments and remove the pieces. They did it back then. And like today, but to a greater degree, those abortions were more risky to the mother than natural childbirth. So it was perfectly acceptable under Roman law to just give natural birth and then leave the baby exposed to die. This was a normal thing that people did. And one of the things that the early Christians were known for was going around, taking up these exposed babies and raising them as their own. That's what we were known for in the early church. And this was something that offended the people of that culture because it gave the lives of these children value, which they shouldn't have because they should have been able to be discarded like trash. Even the person that has the least value to society is a sacred image bearer of our everlasting God, amen? The moment a human egg is fertilized, there's a new unique image bearer of God, the person with his or her own DNA that determines everything from what hair and eye color she'll have to the skin tone, even some of the personality traits of that person. Will he be athletic? Will she be tall? Will she need braces? Will he be prone to high blood pressure later in life? All those things are contained in this DNA. It has the information that's going to be a huge part of every one of these traits of that person. But just like in our own society, children were largely dehumanized. And the younger the child, the less human they were. And Jesus grabs a little child. And what he's gonna do is draw not a contrast, but a comparison between him and the child. Verse 48, he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, whoever receives me receives him who sent me. There's a progression here, and we're gonna see that it leaves room for nothing apart from humility on the part of the disciples. But it's important to note here, two forms of the word receives are used. The receiving of the child at first here is in hypothetical sense, where receives me is more indicative, and then he says, whoever receives me, he switches, now that's hypothetical, receives the one who sent me and is now indicative. And what, in other words, to make that understandable, when you receive such a child, you are really receiving Jesus. And when you receive Jesus, you are really receiving Yahweh, God Almighty. It's speaking of honoring and respecting the children or the least of these in the same way as you would honor and respect Christ Jesus Himself. In some ways, it's like what we looked at last week in Matthew 25, when the King said to the faithful, inasmuch as you did it to the least, of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. Hebrews 13:2. If you'll turn there. This is an important one too. Hebrews 13:2. It says, "Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware." Right? John Nolan said, "Humble people typified by the child" are all around us to be honored and received. And when you do that, you're honoring Christ. Do do you get that? The disciples should not have been arguing about which one was greatest because none of them should have been concerned about their own greatness. What they needed to concern themselves with was Christ's greatness. And Jesus is reiterating his own impending humiliation by saying, honor the lowest of the low. Because he is lowering himself below them in order to save them. In other words, if I'm not honoring the lowest and most marginalized people, I'm accepting a status above my Lord. It's, it's, it's idolatry to self. is what it is. And it's very hard for every one of us, I think particularly me, right? That there's an old rabbinic saying, saying a man's representative is like the man himself. And Jesus is making the child his representative. By receiving the child, they would receive Jesus. And by receiving Jesus, they would receive Yahweh, eternal God. In other, in other words, we receive God through the honoring Of the most insignificant of persons. Jesus is not emphasizing that you will be great if you honor the least. What he's saying is that we should honor the least because they are great in his eyes. In fact, he came as the lowest of the low. He was born outdoors. His family had to flee when he was born and they were migrants in, in Egypt for some time. He was a blue collar worker until he began his public ministry at about 30 he was hated by all but the most faithful followers, most of whom fled even then when he was arrested. Peter seemed to be his closest friend and, and, and his disciple, and denied even knowing who he was when he went to the cross. That's what he's getting at here. You cannot rightly worship conquering King Jesus until you can serve and honor suffering servant Jesus. And we do that by honoring the least of these. We serve God by serving each other with the attitude that there's no person below us, not even a marginalized child. The call to honor and receive the least among us is not a call to altruistic, self-admiring, charity and social justice. It's a call to the ultimate humility. A humility that we can't even have apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This isn't about outer self-loathing That. A really just kind of insincere virtue signaling when you get to the heart of it. This is, this is about truly believing that all those I come in contact with, of all of them, I am the lowest servant. Greatness will never come to the one with ambitions of greatness, but to the one for whom greatness is unachievable. So we should honor those people Phil Breitman said, true greatness comes when we take the lowest place. Seeking no recognition for ourselves, but showing concern for the weak and helpless. I believe that the reason this is true is because when we accept the lowest place and seek greatness, we will know the source of the greatness. And that source is Jesus, our great God and Savior. And, And so as we reflect, as we reflect on the birth of our Lord Jesus who came, came humbly in that unassuming little town of Bethlehem. We see a biblical picture of the Magi, people of very high social status, bringing gifts and bowing down before this baby who was born and laying in unsanitary condition. They didn't condescend to him or extend altruistic pity. They honored him. We see the shepherds. These are guys who didn't get their job because they had made such great life decisions, right? They were the ones that were usually not that trustworthy. And we see them doing the same. You, you may have seen the Christmas card with Santa Claus kneeling at the manger. Have you ever seen that? Right? Of all the images of Saint Nick, that's probably the most historically accurate. Nicholas of Myra gave up supposedly great wealth to love Jesus and serve as a monk and a priest. In fact, it's reported that he was called to the Council of Nicaea as a bishop. And there, he sucker punched the heretic Arius. I like this story. (laughs) He sucker punched him because Arius had misrepresented the nature of his God and King Jesus. He really cared about who Jesus was. Now, St. Nicholas, he understood humility because he's He's known to have embodied the value of anonymous giving, and we only know that because he got caught. And the person who caught him clearly didn't listen to his request to be quiet about it. The man was a man who was so destitute that he had come to a point where he felt like he had no choice but to sell off his daughters. Nicholas honored this poor man and his daughters before he could do that by secretly throwing coins in their window at night several times so that nobody would know that they had received charity. I think we all would agree that unborn children and foster children and those like them are among the most marginalized of people in our society. How do we honor them and thus honor Jesus? I found it delightfully ironic that we landed on this passage on the day that we would be honoring Camp Allendale. Isn't that cool? My my prayer this morning is that we would not give out of pity or altruism or feeling sorry for anybody, but that we would honor the children that we are giving to. That we would honor these foster kids that will be touched by the ministry of Camp Allendale with a sense of respect for them. What does it look like for us to see them as the greats? To honor them as we honor Christ. To receive them as we've received Christ. Before we close, I want to share my heart when it comes to foster kids in Camp Allendale. I'm the adoptive father of four former foster children. And my prayer is that Camp Ellen becomes useless. And that they have to either shut their doors or change their mission. I was talking to Ray this week and he agreed. Boy, wouldn't it be cool if we had to change our mission that we had to like, you know, maybe make it a camp for adopted kids because there just aren't enough foster kids out there. There are roughly 437,000 foster kids in the United States. 60,000 of them are right here in California. That's that's less than three kids per church. There are roughly 117,000 children who are ready to adopt in our country and yet have no forever family. Nobody's interested in them. They're they're too old. They've got too much baggage. They're too damaged. They would be too hard. People say they care, but nobody's willing to count the cost and let their homes and families be disrupted for their sake. What that means is that there are nearly 120,000 children who will wake up on Christmas morning, 14 days from now, in a bed that isn't theirs. In a house that is not their own. Yet who could have had that. Who will have placed presents under the tree for them? Who will warm up hot chocolate with those little marshmallows and candy cane? Who will tell them that eternal God became flesh, lowered himself beneath them, and suffered for their sake to give them eternal hope? There are reported 96 million Christians who attend church services weekly in America. What that means is that if two more, just two more out of every thousand people who attend church regularly would adopt a foster child, there wouldn't be enough foster kids to go around. As a visual, there's about 115, 120 people here. So if I can have everybody, just let's everybody put both hands up with all your fingers. Put both hands up with all your fingers up there. Okay. Uh, Linda, can you put down one finger, just one? Okay. I'm gonna pick on Josh. Josh, can you put down one finger? Okay. All the rest of the fingers are up. That many, and there wouldn't be enough children to go around. Go ahead and put your hand around. I think we all know what to pray for, and not everyone is called to go out and adopt foster kids. But all of us are called to honor them. So what do we pray for? And what do we pray about this Christmas? And I would ask that you would let that end here. I would ask that you would give generously to Camp Allendale to bless those children. That you would pray for the adopted children across this nation. And that if you would be and even remotely in a position where you might, pray, to, pray to, to see if God would call you to adoption. If any of you do feel like you might be called to adopt, I'd ask that you please see Denise or myself or see the Bears. Where the Bears at? are back over here. Uh, I know that it would be such an honor for any of us to help walk you through the process of doing that. What does it look like to honor these kids the least in our society as we honor Christ? What does it look like to honor those who are still in the system? Those who so many in our society like to pretend don't even exist. And when we ask that question, what we're really asking is what does it look like to honor Christ? Let's pray our holy God. We pray for forgiveness. Lord, forgive us for thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to. Teach us, O oh Lord, to humble ourselves, to become servants of all, and to look up to the lowest of the low in reverence of our King, born in a lowly state. Lord, may we ever honor and serve the Lord Jesus from a place of humility, that he may be great in us. Cause us, O oh Lord, not to condescend to others, but, to for, but forgive us, for we have not loved you with all our hearts, minds, souls, and strength. And we've not loved our neighbors as ourselves. May you guard our hearts from the temptations of the devil who would stir in us a desire to be great and to raise ourselves to divinity like you, but cause us to humbly look upon you and to trust you as to obedience. Lord, as we continue in this Advent season, bring us great joy as we wait eagerly that day that Christ comes to restore all of creation, that we may reign with Him for eternity, and Lord, be glorified in us. Give us strength, O God, and boldness as we live out our lives. May our identity be in you. Prepare, O God, for your mission field that is before us in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.